Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line. And now, here are your hosts, award-winning influencer and pioneering author of seven books, Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. I know that you were mostly just taking up time so that I wouldn't get the chance to ask my question. That was mainly it. Are we done yet? You guys, no, it's so no. fun to be here. My question, which is better than Colin's question. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll see. So anyways, my point is consumers do these insane, possibly dangerous things when they have that threat to their resources and maybe in particular these highly commoditized resources that we perceive as necessary for what what feels like basic functioning, getting around, going to our job, making money. This whole panic buying thing, it just feels that the difference between normal life and chaos is just so thin. So Ryan, you know we've moved this recording a few times now, don't you? Yes, you were having some home repairs done. I was. I'm having a new roof put on in in Sarasota in Florida. I assume alligator damage? Alligator damage, absolutely. happens a lot. It does. It it, it happens when I run away from the alligators as climb as high as I possibly can. (laughs) That's what they recommend you do. Good job, Colin. (laughs) So we're having this uh, roof done, and therefore my apologies if uh, the listener can hear um, them stapling and doing various other things, I know not what, or generators in the background. Uh, But the reason I'm telling you that as part of that is, so we're recording this in late October. I actually ordered it back in March. And it's only just turned up. So you've been waiting for the better part of a year now for a roof? Well, six months, March till now, six months. Um, maybe it might be longer, actually, isn't it? Uh, but yeah, absolutely. And why? I, I assume it's because it had your roof has all those microprocessors in it that they can't get for cars? <laughs> yeah. The, 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 the main reason was because I was after an alligator-proof roof. <laughs> those are hard to come by. Sure, sure. <laughs> This has obviously been caught up in the whole issue that everyone's going to be uh, either is or going to be facing, which is around post-COVID, the supply chains are all been screwed up, all the ports are screwed up and everything else, and therefore manufacturing's been screwed up and blah, 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 blah. Uh, and therefore, we are clearly suffering from scarcity which is a good link into our guests. Over to you, Ryan. That's right. Yeah. So when Colin said he wanted us to talk about scarcity, I turned to my favorite scarcity expert. Um, We're actually welcoming back on the podcast for the second time, Dr. Professor Kelly Goldsmith. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me, Colin and Ryan, two of my favorite humans. So brief introduction about Kelly, possibly the most interesting person I know. So she got her PhD in marketing at Yale. So she's super fancy. She had her first uh, teaching job at Northwestern, which is where I got my degree. So I love her for that. Before she kind of got into academia, she was actually a contestant on the TV show Survivor back when she was young. Ah, that's right. Yeah. And so uh, she actually gave a TED Talk recently, which we will link to in the show notes, where she explains how some of her interest in scarcity as a topic grew out of her experience on that TV show, eating bugs on the savannah in Africa for TV audience. And that's clearly the reason 
telly's here because that's where the future lies, doesn't it? That's right. Yeah, on reality TV shows, how we're all going to be reality TV shows. No, no, in, in oh, scarcity, right. mate. In in, oh, in the fact right. that we we you know we're running out of gas, we're running out of this, we're running out of that. We're all going to be eating bucks shortly. I, I mean, I can't. I've got no counter argument to that. That's well, seems good news, me. guys. They're delicious. So <laughs> we have that to look forward to. Um, and we're going to do a separate episode after this uh, on bug recipes with Kelly. Yes. Oh my gosh. Let's make a YouTube video. Let's get some recipes going. I mean, that sounds future. great. Kelly, sincerely, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, no, thanks, Kelly. I will literally do anything Ryan tells me to ever, so I'm I'm happy to do it. And we now have that recorded. That's so fine. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, um, well, why don't we start by just talking about what scarcity is? And I, I guess there's kind of two approaches to it. There's kind of actual scarcity, which is almost kind of an economic descriptor of what's going on in a marketplace. And then there's the psychological consequences of scarcity and how people react to scarcity. So I don't know, Kelly, do you want to kind of give us a, a quick primer on what scarcity is and what it means to people? I would love to. I typically think about scarcity um, at the level of the individual, though you could think about it in kind of a classic economic macro sense as well. So when you think about it as an everyday consumer, really, you or I, there's there's two primary ways we can experience scarcity. One is we can experience what we call objective scarcity, which is where you're actually running out of something that you need. So if your car is low on gas, right, we see that gas gauge going down, or your phone is low on battery, that's objective scarcity. You you need that stuff to make it through your day, and you don't have enough of that stuff. Or if there's not enough roof tiles to be there's able to do not enough roof tiles, right, and, and to protect yourself from alligators and whatnot. So that's objective scarcity. Subjective scarcity, we also experience a lot here as consumers in the United States. It's when, regardless of how much we actually have, maybe what we have is actually fine, in fact, but we still feel like we don't have enough, right? So if our neighbor gets a third car and we have one and it's kind of crumbling, we might experience the sense that we don't have enough money. Or if our kid's are always going on luxury vacations with their parents for months on end. And we just don't, we can't take that time off work. We might experience like a subjective scarcity of time. So really, again, here in the United States, I just say that because that's where I've done the bulk of my research. We find that consumers oftentimes experience subjective scarcity. And obviously they can experience objective scarcity as well, as so many of us have had to contend with in different ways uh, throughout the course of the pandemic. So, so before we get it, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. So there's does, a there's a scarcity of like microphone time between Colin and I for jumping in and getting a question. I love Go that. Ahead. I love that you're fighting to ask questions about this. Go for it, Colin. We're so desperate to get your wisdom, Kelly. Yes. And I'm glad Kelly chose me to ask the next question. <laughs> <laughs> I've got two questions, actually. Mm-hmm. That's cheating. <laughs> you only get one, Colin. <laughs> so there is like Black Friday scarcity. Yeah. So question one is, well, where does that fit? Yeah. Let me reinvent, maybe invent a phrase. I'm sure I'm not because I'm not that clever. But it must be also relative scarcity. Right. Well, scarcity is always relative, right? right? You can't experience scarcity without having what we refer to in the literature as a reference point, right? So it's you you know you don't have enough because you're comparing your resources against a higher and more desirable level. 
So thinking back to that gas gauge, you know, you don't have enough gas because you see that like the good side where it's towards the F and yours is towards the E, right? So it's yeah. telling you, you don't have enough, like I said, as compared to a higher, more desirable reference point. And that's what activates the sense of scarcity. So all scarcity is by definition relative. When we think about Black Friday, is it objective or subjective scarcity? I think that's a really interesting question. Uh, what marketers like scarcity and scarcity marketing tactics are a mainstay of the marketers toolkit, which have probably been around since, you know, the old timey days. They were probably saying just two left. Uh, but it was popularized uh, by Cialdini in 1984 when he first published his book, Influence, where it's one of his six principles of persuasion is people attach more value to things as those things become less available or more scarce in our parlance. This idea that scarcity increases value, we've seen it in economics. And it's the premise for what economists often to refer to as commodity theory. So we know the scarcity increases value. So therefore, marketers who have read Chaldini's book and other work, they're like, great, we'll just make products scarce and consumers are going to go crazy and come in and buy them. And when we think about what Black Friday looks like to consumers, that's really predicated on this notion that scarcity increases value. So Walmart has a doorbuster that they've only got 50 flat screen TVs priced at this like obscene discount. So people get there and they're waiting at two in the morning till it opens at six and they're elbowing their way to the front and the whole deal. But the question is, is that objective or subjective scarcity? And again, I think the markers want you to believe that it's objective scarcity, that you actually don't have what you need. Therefore, you need to have this really dramatic yeah. reaction to it. But in reality, I think one thing that's really that I think about a lot, actually, is for consumers here in the West and other, actually around the world, Consumers are so much more empowered with information than they've ever been before in their lives. So just because Walmart tells you they have a doorbuster and tells you there's 50 flat screen TVs that are priced at this really great discount. Well, now we can all go online and see like our other retailers going to have the same discount or close to it in the near term as well. Like it's so much easier for consumers to engage in comparison shopping and to be like meaningfully informed about prices and discounts that I think the lever of scarcity that marketers often used to pull it can and should be getting a little bit less effective as time progresses, just because a lot of that was smoke and mirrors in the past in order to drive like immediate sales, in order for firms to juice their returns right right before the fiscal year ends. And nowadays, I mean, not just with our access to more information about deals and deal aggregators online, but also the burgeoning secondary market. You know, we've got eBay, we've got Mercari, we've got Poshmark, we've got Rebag, we've got the Real Real. There's all these websites where you know people get sick of their Louis Vuitton, carry all, they can resell no, it. I am. Ryan has been talking to me about this, you guys, for years. Please, podcast listeners, start a GoFundMe. Get Ryan a better Louis Vuitton Neverfall. He wants the GM. It's not just a want, it's a need. So Thank please you. be thinking of Ryan. <laughs> so anyways, my point being, like you think about, again, you guys probably, with the exception of Ryan, I guess Colin, you might not think about Louis Vuitton bags all that much. But Louis Vuitton is, is just a brand that's coming to mind. Um, they introduced limited editions, right? And they're leveraging that sense of objective scarcity. Like, oh, there's only going to be X hundred number of Louis Vuitton limited edition Mercari neon colored bags that come out for, uh, you know, fall or not fall. They wouldn't do neon for fall. Now, what am I even saying? But spring, let's <laughs> say spring. As if they would do neon they would for do fall. That. Uh, but like spring, <laughs> spring 2022. But now it's it's not like they are lying. They only did make X hundred number of those bags, but now you could always find them online. Somebody is always reselling it. So I think, again, this notion 
that you can't get access to what you want, it's just less meaningful. Now, I apologize. That answer was too long. Uh, but you you get what I mean. No, absolutely. That was that was interesting. I know that you were mostly just taking up time so that I wouldn't get the chance to ask my question. That was mainly it. Are we done yet? You guys, no, it's so no. fun to be here. My question, which is better than Colin's question, is uh, <laughs> the runs on toilet paper and the, like the, kind of these panic induced yeah. scarcity. Is that objective or subjective scarcity or or some combination of both? Yeah, I think that's a little bit different because what we experienced during the pandemic was not a marketing tactic, right? Like right. I actually, as somebody that's been in a business school for 99% of my professional career, I was surprised we didn't see like the shamans of the world leaning in and producing, a ju- like buy a new factory, produce all the toilet paper, make all the money. But it's just not that easy, right? They can't print it that quickly. So really the scarcity that we saw in the store, like my uh, Target here in Nashville, the shelves were so empty, they took out the shelves because it was too depressing for consumers to walk in and see empty shelves. So then you walk in and Target all of a sudden looks like an empty airplane hangar. Like there's no Target. (laughs) Where'd the Target go, right? So they just like installed a dance floor or something? Basically, right? It was like an empty warehouse where a Target used to be. I'm like, oh, this is these are dark times, right? First they came for the target and then what, but then and anyways, I digress. That is because that's not a mainstay or the marketer's toolkit that really, you can't argue that that's subjective in the sense that objectively there are shortages. Now you, if you're somebody, but weren't the objective shortages caused by subjective shortages or, or at least maybe no, fear I mean, of well, here's the deal. Shortages? I mean, uh, not to jump on your question, Ryan, no, like, go, go. let's, let's all, let's get serious about toilet paper here for a second. Cause I don't Please. mess around about this topic. Having been talking about it for like 18 months. So like, think about your own toilet paper situation. If you're the average American consumer, you probably don't have like a massive basement. Like you might have some room for storing a few extra rolls, but like you don't have the place in your house to store 50, 60, 700 rolls of toilet paper. Let me tell you, Kelly, I'm having a special room. I took the option of when I had the roof done to have a special toilet roll holder. But, yeah, he's yeah. important. He's doing the roof specifically <laughs> over his eight month supply of toilet paper. You never know when the end of the world's coming, mate. It's, I mean, well, we do know it'll now. start in Florida. <laughs> facts are facts, America. The end of the world is definitely beginning. And what city are you in, in Florida? Are you not allowed to say? Because all your Sarasota. friends are going to show up. Oh, Sarasota. Well, I don't. I wouldn't put Sarasota first on the list, but it's it's going to be like top ten. Back to the apocalypse and the toilet paper. <laughs> Average American's consumer does not have the square footage in their home for a massive bunker of toilet paper. And also we're not used to buying it that way. So when we hear the world's running out of toilet paper, we think to ourselves, we've got to get more. And, and, and the problem is the reason it actually sort of is objective scarcity is if you think back to the beginning of the pandemic, when we're all thinking, okay, everyone in my family is going to be at home for an indefinite amount of time. Maybe the stores are going to shut. Maybe like we're not going to be allowed to leave our houses you don't know how much toilet paper you need. Like we have never forecasted that scenario. And when you don't know how much you need, I think if you're taking care of yourself and being strategic and forward looking, like getting extra makes sense. Like you feel like you need more. So therefore, like I don't, I don't actually think it was subjective. I think objectively, because we were hedging against all this uncertainty, people just wanted to get more. And then of course that perpetuates the objective, you know, scarcity. Yeah. Because then we're at the white bridge target where all the shelves are removed and people are freaking out and losing their mind and Colin's building a bunker. And, and here we are today. That was a great answer. So when you talked about objectives, um, scarcity, I, I wrote down the word need, isn't it perceived need? Okay. This is an interesting question. Well, I think 
if like, for example, if my phone has zero battery and it dies, is that a real need or a perceived need? I guess in the grand scheme of things, if we take a massive step back, like, you know, in the 80s, I didn't have a cell phone. I don't necessarily need it to breathe and survive on this planet. But in the moment, that feels like a pretty real need that I've got to <laughs> plug it in, right? Because the way I conduct my business and, and go about my day involves a cell phone, right? With the exception of like our basic biological imperatives, like sleeping, eating, breathing, like they're all needs are perceived needs. But nonetheless, like our lives would be pretty substantially disrupted if some things were removed, right? Like even toilet paper, right? Like what are you going to do if you don't have toilet paper? Actually, my kids were talking about this on the way to school this morning. It's so funny that we're talking about it now. But like if 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 all of a sudden toilet paper Can you put were, your kids on, Kelly? They're, they're actually, they're at kindergarten. It's at 8.35 a.m. So they're probably busily involved in some sort of coloring activity. Also, their rate, I don't know if you guys can afford them. Like there are, <laughs> they get a high premium for podcasts these days. But, I um, believe it. We were talking about how around the world, not everybody has toilet paper, that people do different things. And of course, they found this like shocking and disturbing, but uh, as a kindergartner would. But the point being, like, yeah, there's alternatives to toilet paper. But if all of a sudden, you know, the president came over the airwaves and said, all right, America, there will never be toilet paper again. You have to wipe with your hands. It would be a disruption, right? Like that would feel like we won't, we don't want to live that way. Sounds like a great policy. <laughs> oh, my God. No, I vote no. But Colin, you're more than welcome. You are in Florida. So you're more than welcome to wipe with your hands. <laughs> No shade to the Floridians who are listening, but I am from Southern California, so... That goes back to your point, because when I was talking about relative scarcity, right. I was also thinking about people that live in different parts of the world, and you answered the question, actually, by talking about the reference point, so I guess it's the reference point, which is, if you've always wiped... I never, you know what? I didn't start this podcast today thinking <laughs> I'm talking about. These are the magical <laughs> rounds you stumble into when you talk to Kelly Goldsmith. Yeah. It's like I can't believe we're talking non-stop about non-stop amazing stuff. Toilet rolls and, and, and wiping yourself with your hands. I mean, <laughs> where did we get Good morning. Yes. Give, give the people what they want, Colin. Yes. This is you what brought they me here for a reason. Exactly. Yeah. Never mind. But, but I guess if you're from a part of the world where that does happen, then. Yeah then that's your reference point. And therefore you go, well, why do you need toilet paper in the first place? Oh, yeah. I, I, was, I was telling my kids that this morning. I said, there's people in other parts of the world who think we're disgusting for using toilet paper. And my kids sure. were like, but they're using their hands. I'm like, but that's normal for them. Right. So there's, again, in terms of what's actually scarce and what we actually need, other than I'm probably missing one, but like food, water, think about Maslow's hierarchy, like bump on down to the bottom there. You know, we've got some pretty basic needs to stay alive on this planet. And then we go up from there. But that doesn't mean the disruptions at the top of Maslow's hierarchy don't feel real and don't change our psychology and don't make us feel awful. But yeah, at a basic level, most of the time we have the resources that we need, luckily. That brings me on to uh, another question for, for you. So let me give you a bit of background. So uh, in England recently, we've been running out of gas, petrol, okay? And the reason that we've been running out of gas or petrol is because there's not enough drivers to deliver the stuff. Okay. And the reason that is, is because in, certainly in the, in um, most Western countries, drivers are, there's a shortage of drivers. Uh, that's been spurned on by Brexit in the UK and COVID. And it sort of got into this perfect storm. And therefore, therefore suddenly everybody was queuing up at gas stations. Yeah. And again, if you looked at the scenario around the toilet roll, toilet rolls as well, and, and other things, and you know, just it just comes down to this sort of my my question is around this 
whole panic buying thing. It just feels that the difference between normal life and chaos is just so thin. Oh, it's very thin. I think we, if we learn nothing else during the pandemic, right? Like the difference between normal life and feeling like we're living in a dystopian sci-fi movie is very thin. And I guess, I hope it's good that we have learned this because it is not something as, I mean, I've been a consumer behavior researcher for, I don't know, over 15 years, Ryan could tell you. And I, I, I just had never thought through like the thin veil of humanity, right? And, and, and how easily it would be to puncture. So yeah, I think you threaten our access to, I mean, and, and gasoline is an interesting example because it's like toilet paper in the sense that it's highly commoditized, something we're accustomed to having access to. Ryan and I teach marketing classes all day. Like gasoline and toilet paper specifically are two cases I have taught when we say it's really hard to build consumer loyalty in those categories because, you know, where do you buy gas? You just go to whatever's cheapest, right? And so we're just accustomed to having these commodities around. And when that gets threatened, people go nuts. Because if you think about, you know, our hierarchy of needs, like, yes, there's sleep and, and breathing and food kind of towards the bottom, but like getting around and physical, personal hygiene and, you know, those kinds of things, they're, they're not, the, they're not like self-actualization. They're not like sitting under the Bodhi tree at the very top. Right. So we really feel like we need that. And I think that to the point about people's panic buying, in uh, the UK, we had a similar thing in the United States. Ryan knows this well. He and I are both here in the Southeast. And there was a almost like a perceived gas. Oh, it was a real gasoline shortage because there was a pipeline that burst. There was footage all over the internet of people filling up plastic bags with gasoline and putting them in their trunks, right? I saw one where the guy filled the bed of his pickup truck. How are you going to do? I have so many questions, right? But all I know, and I'm not like a physicist or a chemist, but even I know that this is a bad idea, right? Like don't fill your pickup truck, the flat bed of your pickup truck with gasoline. So anyways, my point is consumers do these insane, possibly dangerous things when they have that threat to their resources. And maybe in particular, these highly commoditized resources that we perceive as necessary for our what, what feels like basic functioning, getting around, going to our job, making money, et cetera. And also you can think about with gasoline. And this is something we saw during the pandemic with hand sanitizer and other products as well. Like if we really do run out of that, or if there is like a delay in people's ability to acquire, the person that has 800 bottles of Purell wins because they can sell it, right? Either they can use it or they can sell it. And I do think during the pandemic, forces like Amazon pretty quickly shut down that resale because it was seen as being just in poor taste to like price gouge when the, the gouge, world yeah. is ending. It's also illegal in many places. But it's like, is I understand that being in poor like, taste is, is a more damning thing to say, but it, it is also, illegal. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Illegal, fine. In poor taste, never. Never. And you're from the UK, Colin, right? So you should relate to that as well. But anyways, so my point being, there's very little wrong, like, in terms of economics with hoarding resources when you feel like they're running out, be it gasoline, toilet paper, anything else, because either you can use it or you can resell it. So it's sort of a it's sort of a win win. But then you, you know, I mean, it is imminently rational, right? That, which is it, the point from a strict economic standpoint. Yeah. I mean, that's what we all do, right? Like that's what we look at the stock market. You try to buy stocks that other people want that they can't get access to and the price goes up. I mean, that's what our economy is predicated on. So I think it's funny to say it's rational. And then we take a step back and we're talking about some dude filling up the back of his <laughs> No, no, that dude was rational. He was the best of us. He was what we all strive to be.
we've been running a feature called I'm in a pickle, where our listeners send in the business problems that have been particularly tricky. It's been going great and we love hearing from people, but we want to do more. So all that we'd ask you to do is if you've got a business problem, then send it to contact at beyondphilosophy.com. That's contact at beyondphilosophy.com and be part of the show. We'll take a look at your problem. We'll give you our best advice and hopefully that advice will help others as well. So don't forget, send an email to contact at beyondphilosophy.com. That's contact at beyondphilosophy.com. Let's talk a little bit more about how people react to scarcity, which has been some of of the very interesting work that you've done, your research. You You know, there's objective scarcity, there's subjective scarcity, and then there's how we react to it, how we respond to it. So maybe we can categorize these in, in two buckets. Let's talk about kind of the negative or the scary sure. first, but then maybe we can end by talking about the positive potential effects of scarcity, which is sure. uh, something that, that you've kind of some of the unique work that you've done that, that um, people might my be interested gosh. in. Compliments to my research. Oh my gosh. First Compliments of all, are also scarce around here. So I mean, right. Yeah. Seriously. Uh, I, I, from this discerning audience, I appreciate that. And everyone listening should go to my website, prof, P-R-O-F, Goldsmith. G-O-L-D-S-M-I-T-H dot com, C-O-M, profgoldsmith.com. And I'm also at Prof Goldsmith on all the socials, though. Do I post anything on those socials? Seldom. But, you know, one day, maybe. But for now, no. <laughs> for the listener, we'll include all of those links in the show notes. Fantastic. And you guys should watch my TED Talk because, like, I think in the past year, it's just been my mom, like, three times. So I would love it if that view count went up by more than two. So anyways, but enough about me and my ridiculous self-aggrandizing. Back to how scarcity affects people. So I would say, like, I give, like, three-hour-long presentations on this topic, so it's hard to put it. We got time. Go ahead. I'm fine to hang out all day, by the way. This would be my dream. So, like, let's never get off the phone. So, but to try to, I know your listeners, like they've got stuff to do. They've got toilet paper to hoard. They've got gasoline (laughs) to put in the the back of their truck. So um, I don't want to waste their time. So I'll try to put a little bit of a button on it. Basically, in terms of how scarcity affects people, really, we we wrote what I consider to be an excellent paper, uh, though if you're not a marketing academic, it's probably really dry, but it's called a self-regulatory model of resource scarcity linked on my website for those interested. And basically what it does is it, talks about how people respond to these scarcity threats um, when they experience them. And really what we find, and this is combining, like if you're interested in this area in that paper, I think we do a nice job of talking about research from all kinds of different disciplines and trying to make a model that categorizes a lot of different responses that we see to scarcity, both psychological and behavioral responses. And one thing that we see that's common across anthropology, economics, psychology, sociology, marketing, is when people experience a scarcity threat, their knee-jerk reaction, whether it's like conscious or not, is you you see this threat, like, okay, there's the world's running out of toilet paper. And you ask yourself, can I do anything about this, right? Again, I don't know if it's always conscious, but on some level you ask yourself, can I do anything about this? And going back to toilet paper, you know, you see on CNN, the world is United States, empty shelves, people are buying all the toilet paper. You ask yourself, can I do anything about this? And if the answer is yes, you follow this pathway towards what we call scarcity reduction, where you engage in like direct reparative actions. So CNN tells me everybody's buying the toilet paper. There's no toilet paper on shelves. I asked myself, can I do anything about this? The answer is yes. I got to get to that Kroger that nobody goes to. I bet they still totally have toilet paper. 
I race to the Kroger, I store up the toilet paper, I come home, I've engaged in direct repair, I've reduced my own scarcity, I've sort of solved the problem, right? So a lot of um, research that falls along the route of direct repair, Brian might be familiar with some of this stuff. It's by Shaw, Mullenathan, Shafir. There's a whole camp that came out of Princeton. Uh, a couple of those guys are now at University of Chicago. That's not you, Colin Shaw. That's a different Shaw. Right. Yeah. Okay. Did, you guys, yeah. I, I did, was I not supposed to say that Colin doubles as a professor at the <laughs> University of Chicago? Oh, my God. I am so embarrassed. Colin, I'm so sorry. Okay. So, no, it's Anuj Shaw, who's at uh, University of Chicago. And Sendhil Mullenathan and Eldar Shafir. Have, they, uh, Mullenathan and Shafir even have a book called Scarcity. Great title. And they look at these psychological consequences that result from all different kinds of scarcity following that direct repair route. So, for example, they look at financial deprivation and what they find is people who don't have the money to like pay their basic bills. Like you're thinking about money all the time. So it's almost like you're constantly doing math if you're really trying to live within a strict budget. Oh, sure. And yeah. And it, and that activity, that, that constant math of like, oh, if I buy the diapers today, then I can't get a full tank of gasoline. Uh, it's really cognitively taxing. So it's basically top of mind. And because your mind is constantly doing like math, you can't think about other things as much. So you neglect other goals and your memory's not as good. You perform, sometimes you perform worse on cognitive tasks just because you're basically constantly distracted by the fact that you're trying to address the scarcity related issue. So the book gets into that. And it's, I think it's really interesting if you're interested in the, that topic. So that's the direct repair route. You kids can't see me, but that's, I'm making gestures, wildly gesturing to what that looks like to me. So then that's, that's kind of the, I think that's a, I mean, there's down, there's downsides. Like if we're constantly engaged in thinking about our scarcity related issue and we're neglecting other goals, there's definitely downsides to that as well. But with respect to addressing the problem, broadly speaking, that's the best way to get there. You, you see the problem, you know, you have scarcity, you tell yourself you can do something about it and you're trying, right? So that's, that's a plus. The other route, however, is what happens when you notice your experience is scarcity related threats. So the toilet paper is not good for this, but one would be like the ventilators, for example, if you think early days in the pandemic, when everybody's talking about these hospitals don't have enough ventilators and we can't treat patients. So that is a scarcity related threat because you're thinking there's not enough ventilators to go around. If I end up in the hospital with COVID, I could die. Like that's pretty serious scarcity related threat, but I can't do anything about that. I, I can't make a ventilator, right? I can't make a ventilator substitute. So if you tell yourself you can't do anything about it, it's not like your body, we respond very strongly to scarcity cues because it's it's adaptive and evolutionary, right? We wouldn't have survived as a human species so long in the planet if we didn't see these deficits in our resources and try to address them and get kind of pumped up to do something about it. So you can think of it as when I realize the world is running out of ventilators and I can't do anything about it, I experienced that scarcity related threat, but I can't directly address it. I have this pumped up energy. I want to do something, but I can't engage in the direct route. So I go in the compensatory route. And when you engage in the compensatory route, you're basically um, trying to restore control in other domains, right? So yeah, I can't fix this ventilator problem, but I'm going to organize the heck out of my kid's schedule for tomorrow where they're doing their at-home learning. And I'm going to make sure they do all the, like you're going to, you're going to compensate somehow. Sometimes that behavior can have positive consequences, like with organizing your kids at home learning like it makes you feel like you're in control of something and I guess hopefully they'll learn more so that's plus but also compensatory behavior could be drinking binge watching squid games like whatever you know listening to way too many true crime podcasts because you feel like if you start understanding how crime works then maybe you'll have some control over the universe it's a solution overeating drug use like a lot yeah. of kind of, all of negative things, behaviors right? overspending and, yeah. right like watching the amazon prime packages pile up on your doorway because you feel like you're controlling, like, well, I always yep. needed more tape, et cetera. 
like I said, both pathways can have good and bad outcomes. I think I talk about like a lot of times that compensatory pathway gets more bad press than good press, specifically because in the domain of financial scarcity. So if I feel like I don't have enough money and I and I feel like, look, I am never going to get promoted. My boss hates me. The world is kind of against me. I'm not the lucky one. Right. So I want to compensate in another domain. But one way people compensate for feeling like they don't have enough money is buying stuff to make them look rich. And that's going to perpetuate the problem, right? Yeah. And, or look rich or feel rich. And that's going to perpetuate the problem. So that that negative consequence of the compensatory pathway gets a lot of airtime. But I'm here to tell you, having like spent a lot of time uh, in the literature, both the direct repair pathway and the compensatory pathway have upsides and downsides. It's very interesting. Uh, I'm definitely could carry on talking to you for hours about this. Let's do it. Don't cut <laughs> yourself off. <laughs> what I'm trying to do now is I'm sitting here going, this is really interesting, but so what? And the so what challenge is from a practical marketing yeah. customer experience perspective. So sure. I'm one of my listeners and they're sitting there going, yeah, she's all really interesting stuff, but what do I do tomorrow then? Now I've understood this in more detail. Right. I think it's really important knowing that marketing, ta- these scarcity marketing tactics have been a mainstay of the marketer's toolkit for so long. I think it's really important to carefully think through our assumptions about how effective they are, why they're effective, when they're most likely to be effective. And like, for example, with Black Friday, you one thing we're, this is just something that we are like desperate to get published. We have a third round revision at one of our top marketing journals. And I think this finding is so cool that it needs to be out there. But with these third round revisions, you never know. So I'm just going to tell you it here, listeners. Oh, we got and, yeah, this breaking may be news. The, breaking news. It may be the only place you get to hear it because who knows if this finding is ever going to make the light of day. But one thing that we've seen is with time scarcity promotions, like limited time to buy, kind of analogous to like Black Friday implicitly is a is a time scarcity promotion, can involve quantity scarcity too, but we focus on the time piece. Those work well in store because if they say limited time to buy and you're in store, it's really arousing the products in front of you. It's really concrete, like you're in a different mindset. But when you're online, it's a totally different reaction because online shopping is a much more kind of cold cognitive process. There's psychological distance between you and the purchase. It's not in your hand. It's not even for immediate delivery. It's something you're going to get in like a few days or sometimes even longer, depending on, you know, supply chain shutdowns. So because of that, like people actually don't get the same sort of visceral response to time scarcity when they're online shopping. And I think that's a really nice example of why having a deeper understanding of how scarcity affects consumer psychology and consumer decision-making is important because the marketplace is evolving. And when this research, like the Cialdini book that I referenced previously, was published in 1984, and there's been good research that came out on how scarcity affects consumer behavior, but a lot of it's from the 90s, when online shopping was basically non-existent. And so now we live in, I mean, post-pandemic, we live in a world where more people than ever are buying more things than ever online. Like I buy my groceries online and have them delivered, right? I didn't used to do that. And so because the way we sell has changed, we also need to ask ourselves, should we be questioning some assumptions that we have about what levers we can pull to actually get people excited about buying our products? And I think scarcity is one of those things that begs revisiting, both because of changes in kind of the placement P of the four P's. So if we're selling direct to consumer online versus we're selling in store versus we're selling through Amazon, et cetera, both because of changes in the channel that we're selling through, but also because of, you know, ch- macro level changes like right now. There's a lot of talk about scarcity with climate change, right? There's not going to mm-hmm. be enough. There's not enough water in certain parts of the world. 
Um, there's not enough global resources in certain parts of the world. You layer on top of that the pandemic, right? Where there's not a lot of, where there's gasoline shortages, supply chain shutdowns. Like I think consumers are experiencing scarcity outside of the store more so than ever before. At least it's top of mind because we're getting exposed to so much content about it in the media. So again, for that reason, knowing that like if I'm constantly thinking about, oh my gosh, you know, gasoline shortages and I got to get to this and oh, what about Christmas? And there's not going to be enough presents because there's supply chain shutdowns. Like our consumers are distracted. And that fact alone, I'm sure you guys have talked about system one and system two thinking, which is like a classic um, BDT, a behavioral decision theory paradigm. When consumers are occupied with these thoughts of scarcity, they're way less likely to engage in system two thinking because they just don't have enough bandwidth cognitively to devote to that deep level of processing. For that reason, if you're a marketer, well, how do you sell to people when they only got a tiny portion of their brain that they're going to use to listen Mm -hmm. to you? You have to use tactics that are persuasive when they're involved in this kind of thinking fast, that system one type of thinking. So like I said, I could go on about this all day. In terms of the so what, I think there's a whole lot of so what. I think Scarcity considerations not only affect how people like the promotional tactics people respond to that can vary by distribution channel. They affect the way you want to communicate to your consumers if they have scarcity on their mind. They affect the benefits that people find persuasive. Like one thing we haven't even touched on is especially when there's a scarcity threat that people don't feel like they can address. They're really interested in benefits to the self more so than benefits to like the greater good. So if you're, and this is now combining like pandemic with climate change, layering top of all the things, but it's relevant to today's consumer. If you're trying to sell like an eco-friendly, sustainable product in line with addressing climate change issues, how do you do that during a pandemic when people have scarcity on their minds and so they're chronically more self-focused? And so I'm saying I don't I don't necessarily have all the answers, but I think unpacking the psychology of scarcity is really relevant to understanding how to address those types of questions for marketers. If I could like just reinforce, like one of the minor through lines of this whole podcast, as we've done it over the years, in trying to understand behavioral economics and behavioral science ideas more thoroughly, is exactly this point that that Kelly's raising. Like it's it's good to know that scarcity works. It's also not enough. Like you need to know when it works and why it works, so that you can figure out like on average is not good enough. Like if you actually want to implement this stuff and have it affect your business and make things work better for you, knowing these boundary conditions around it, knowing that it might work better for in person than online. Like all of these things become very important when we actually need to make actual decisions on the ground. Right. It's been fascinating, Kelly. Thank you. I generally could carry on talking for hours, but um, uh, I don't want to, uh, uh, I don't want to. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to. He's got a roof. He's got toilet paper to hoard. He's got a roof to put on. You guys, how have we not even talked about true crime with Colin Bean in Florida? Um, <laughs> did you find Brian Laundry? is my question. So we've got, we've got a follow-up podcast on bug recipes. We're going to do another follow-up podcast on uh, true crime. Like Kelly oh, just uh, what, what about one on my new alligator roof? Yes. Well, that, 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 that would be good as well. Yeah. Yes. Alligator toilet paper. Colin, you, you've, you've stumbled upon something that's really key here. It's, an, it's a niche market. I have to say, I never thought we'd be talking about any of those subjects when we, when we finally get back on the show, but I'm, I am really pleased that uh, you did come back on, Kelly. So thanks thank very you. much for, for coming. It's been uh, fascinating. I, I thank you guys so much for all the very kind words. And I'm going to give a call out to your listeners. Please write in in the comment section or whatever they had and, and ask me to come back and talk about true crime 
because I would love it. <laughs> I would love it so much. Uh, and maybe I'll tie it into marketing. I don't know. I'll, I'm going to spend, I'm going to brainstorm that for a while. Well, true crime podcasts are some of the most popular. So clearly, if we want to increase our viewership, we need to go where the people are. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> Hashtag marketing. So Kelly, if people want to get hold of you, uh, how do they do that? Let me gratuitously plug myself. So it's uh, Prof Goldsmith, P-R-O-F-G-O-L-D-S-M-I-T-H.com. That is my URL. And pretty much everything is there that you could, everything and more that you could ever want to know about me. I'm on all the socials as at Prof Goldsmith. You can add me on LinkedIn. I will accept you. But I, like I said, I'm not crazy about posting on social, but I'm there. And yeah, that's me. Great. Good. Okay. Well, we're, again, we'll include those links in the, in the show notes. It's been really good having you on. Uh, so thanks very much for, um, for, for coming on. Thank you. Thank you guys as always. Great. Good. And we'll uh, talk to everybody next week. Or maybe we should say, we may not be talking to you next week. <laughs> 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 dot, dot, because dot. There is scarcity, and that could tie into true crimes. I don't oh know. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> we know right. Kelly will be here next week. I, <laughs> I will be. Okay. Thanks very much, everyone, and talk to you next week. Cheers. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcasts. We look forward to talking with you next time on The Intuitive Customer. <laughs>